This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello everyone and welcome to a special bonus episode of the 32 Fans Movie Podcast. If you don't recognize that voice as your host, that's because this is not Sammy and this is not Will. This is special guest host Av here for the special bonus episode. Today we're going to talk about two movies. Some might say that in Hollywood today there are only two movies that studios are interested in making. There are the big superhero movies and horror movies that have dominated the last couple of years. So we're going to talk about one of each of those today. First up, I'll be joined by returning guest Zach Brooks and first-time guest Josh Cantor to talk about the latest Marvel movie, Spider-Man Far From Home. After that, Zach will stick around and Will Seaman will return to discuss Ari Aster's latest horror flick, Midsummer. But first up, here's our discussion of Spider-Man Far From Home. Two weeks in Europe. It's going to be great. I'm just going to enjoy my trip, hang out with MJ. Be like really pretty. And therefore, I have value? No, 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 that's not what I meant. I'm messing with you. <laughs> There's got to be someone else you can use. I'm just a friendly neighborhood Spider-Man. Bitch, please, you've been to space. That was the trailer for Spider-Man Far From Home, the 23rd installment in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Directed by John Watts, it stars Tom Holland as Peter Parker, Jake Gyllenhaal as Mysterio, alongside Samuel L. Jackson, Zendaya, and many more. Following the events of Avengers Endgame, Peter Parker is recruited by Nick Fury and Mysterio to face elemental threats from another dimension while he is on a school trip to Europe. Before we get started, I just want to put a quick spoiler warning. We are going to discuss the events of this movie in full from the top. In addition, we, we will probably spoil the events of Avengers Endgame, since that's impossible not to, given what happens in this movie. And many other movies from the Marvel Cinematic Universe may and will come up. If you are not interested in hearing any spoilers of any of those movies, you should pause right now. Go watch all 23 Marvel Cinematic Universe movies in order. And then you could come return to us and join us for this discussion. Josh, what is your experience with the MCU in general? What is your experience with Spider-Man specifically? What is the background that you have as you come to this latest Marvel movie? I'm a bit obsessed with the MCU. At this point, I think they could just put out whatever and I love it. I think they do a really good job. And I think the way that they intertwine all the 20 plus movies together and there's hints to each one. It's just phenomenal how they do that. I grew up reading the comics a bit definitely was a Spider-Man, Venom fan, X-Men, those types of comics as a kid. But more is just I really appreciate the the movies and what they've done and how they connect everything. I even really like the original Spider-Man, the Tom McGuire ones I think were really good. 
the, the middle ones were terrible. Zach, how about you? What are your, uh, what's your past experience with Spider-Man? Are you a big fan of the Spider-Man, this current iteration of it, the previous versions of it? I really like this newest version. I'm a big fan of the original, like two, early 2000s Spider-Mans as well. And as like most people, I did not like the Andrew Garfield Spider-Man. <laughs> and I remember watching old Spider-Man cartoons when I was a kid, the ones that came on Fox in the morning. Oh, yeah, um, on sure. Saturday mornings. Those were, those were really good. And then I was always a huge X-Men fan growing up. That was always my number one. X-Men cartoons, X-Men comics, the action figures. That was my biggest favorite growing up. And then, you know, as the MCU has gotten bigger, I've, I've followed all the MCU movies. I've seen them all. I rewatched a bunch before Endgame came out. And even the ones that I'm like this one, I was like, I don't know if I'll see Far From Home, like right when it comes out. And of course, I saw it like Saturday. So basically opening weekend. I think we're probably all on the same page. You know, I'm also just a huge fan of Tom Holland and this latest version of Spider-Man. I think I mentioned to Zach that I saw Captain America Civil War, which in my opinion is the best Spider-Man movie ever made other than Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. So I saw that at the Arclight Dome Theater in LA where Zach is currently residing for the month of July. And I think he went to see a movie there the other night. I think you actually saw Spider-Man there. Am I, am I wrong? I saw Spider-Man in the Dome. Yeah, I saw Spider-Man in the Dome. So that, I, that was like the best movie experience I've ever had in my life, just in terms of you have this 1,000-seat stadium seating with just a humongous screen and this dome at the top and the most raucous crowd I've ever experienced for a movie. In the movie, there's these parts where they go to different places and the word appears on the screen showing you where they've moved to in the world. And... I didn't even know Spider-Man was going to be in this movie because I wasn't a huge MCU fan yet at that point. And when the word Queens appeared oh, wow. on the screen, the crowd just erupted and like people were like jumping up and down. I assume they knew because, you know, they seemed very <laughs> keyed into what was going on. But I was just like, what's going on here? And then I quickly figured out what was happening. And I think these last, you know, three, four five movies that Tom Holland has been in with Spider-Man has just been amazing. For those interested, I, uh, I put together a small ranking of my Spider-Man movies on Letterboxd. I can uh, share those in the show notes. So Where does like, this one come in? I think I had this as the third or fourth. I have, I have Spider-Verse number one, which I just think is an, an astonishing movie for many different reasons that I think is beyond the scope of what we're talking about now. As I said, Captain America Civil War second. And then I don't remember if I have Spider-Man 2 of the uh, Tommy McGuire. You have Spider-Man 2. I, ha- I yeah, stumbled I across it like 10 minutes ago. And yes, you do have Spider-Man 2. Yeah, there. so I, yeah, I think I have that next. And then I have the, uh, the two Tom Holland feature debut. And you, ra- you rank this one ahead of uh, Homecoming. Yeah, um, I, I put, I'd also rank this one ahead of Homecoming. Yeah, I, I, I thought this was kind of a, a jump forward from there, and, and I really liked Homecoming a lot. I, I kind of shared Zach's approach in that coming into this, I mean, I was obviously I was going to see it. I bought tickets for opening night like a month before the movie, but I wasn't excited for it the same way that I was, and I think that has a lot to do with you know the following the events of Endgame and just how dramatic and gut-punching and joyous that was a number of different ways. It was kind of hard to go into a movie that just felt like it was going to be a lot smaller with a lot lower stakes. I think it really delivered. What was your guys' general overview thoughts of this movie? Yeah, I, I, I do think it was it was cool. You know, a lot of questions after Endgame were like, well, what, like, what happened to the people for those five years? And they kind of addressed it. One guy um, in the news report says, it's weird because, you know, my, I had a younger brother and then I had the snap or they call it the blip. And now he's my older brother. And this other guy's talking about how his wife left him. And there was this whole homeless uh, shelter thing because people don't have their homes. So they, they kind of addressed that, but they also like laughed it off with the scene with the band. So I feel like they did a good job saying to the crowd, look, 
obviously there's a thousand questions, you could, a million questions you can ask, like how practically does it play out that people were gone for five years? We'll address it a little bit, but at the end of the day, we'll laugh it off as well. What are you going to do? You can't really explain it that well. I thought it worked really well. Endgame was quite possibly the biggest movie ever in lots of different ways, but definitely in terms of scale. And, and to really bring it down to just this story about this high school and Spider-Man and his friends. And, and yes, it, it does get out into Europe in different locations, but to take a, a really massive global story that was the whole Avengers saga and then and then follow it up with something that is just like a nice little, you know, nice little mint after your giant meal. <laughs> I would kind of split this movie into two parts, not really chronologically, because they kind of overlap with each other. But there's what I would say the first part of this movie is normal teen high school rom-com about a guy named Peter Parker who goes on a trip to Europe with his friends and is interested in a girl and the hijinks that they get into over there. And then a superhero movie about Spider-Man facing off against these cosmic villains, the elementals that, that we meet pretty quickly into the movie. Let's start with the first part, the teen rom-com. What did you guys think about that? Um, I have to say I'm, I'm really much into the action and all that stuff about the, uh, the MCU. For example, I didn't love the first half of Endgame. I, I appreciate it. Like I could get why somebody would like that, but that's not what I signed up for. You know, if I want to see a rom-com, I'll see a rom-com. I signed up for an action movie. So again, I have nothing wrong with it. I get it. That's what you got to do. But I didn't love that. I really liked it more when it was more of the action. And That's interesting, Josh, because, you know, I would say one of the things that I really love about the MCU is the way that it plays off different genres. And, you know, it'll have Guardians doing this space comedy and Spider-Man doing the high school movies and Captain America. Yeah, I, I agree. And, 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 you know, if you really go back to the source material, that's what Stan Lee's goal was. Because DC, it's all about like Batman and Superman originally were all like super perfect people. And then he introduced Marvel as like these characters that they have flaws. They're normal people. They have issues. They have girl problems, whatever. So I get it. It's, it's totally been part of the storyline in the comics for years and the X-Men, everybody hates them and et cetera. But, you know, personally, if I want to see a rom-com, I'll see a rom-com and that's just not what I signed up for. But again, I, I get that you would appreciate that. I have nothing wrong with it per se. I'm with you. Av. I like that each Marvel movie is kind of a different genre. My favorite Marvel movie is Captain America Winter Soldier. And that's your 50s spy thriller government conspiracy type movie in addition to being a comic book superhero movie i'm a fan of whatever they can make these movies a little bit different than the others and i thought homecoming did a really good job of being a high school story told in the high school and this really felt like kind of the uh, national lampoon's pn vacation of the spider-man saga and we get to see the, the kids traveling to europe and they're all getting on the plane and buying headphone splitters to to share like I, I thought that stuff was all really fun so i actually really like that i like the, the whole movie overall but i thought the you know, just the high school stuff was really great and um, i'm sure we'll get into it but everything with ned and betty i thought was so enjoyable and really fun and and i like by the way I just, uh, we'll get to easter eggs at the end but I, I actually think there's an easter egg about how one of the songs in the movie is one of the songs from national lampoon's Euro Vacation, one of those movies. So it, oh, a, really? it's, I, the I director, European, the director didn't think of that. European Vacation once, and I, I don't remember it very well. And I feel like <laughs> I don't think I liked it very much, but it is, it does feel like that 80s sequel. And you're just getting like expanding on the world that was built in Spider-Man. Yeah, and, and that was great. I think they did a good job. Uh, but again, you know, it's just, 
not what you expect per se. As Zach mentioned, a lot of the comedy, especially in the early part of the movie, comes from the unexpected relationship between Ned and Betty. The two teachers, played by Martin Starr and J.B. Smooth, both just had a lot of laughs to deliver. I thought one really funny thing they did, uh, playing off the blip, is to have Rad, who is kind of Peter's antagonist for this portion of the movie, and they kind of played off the typical rom-com teen trope of the kid who goes away for the summer and comes back from summer vacation and now he's hot or she's hot and they kind of used the blip to because he's basically a kid who was five years younger than them that nobody really knew who he was and now he's older and more mature and good looking and everyone's like wait where did this guy come from that was really funny and they have a, a good joke at the beginning about how even though it was the middle of the year, they made all the kids who blipped back yeah. start from the beginning <laughs> of the year and how that's, that was really unfair. I thought that was just a really good, uh, that was good. teen high school yeah. joke. So I didn't get the, can you guys explain the Brad thing to me? Because did he not blip away, but everybody else did? He was five, I guess he was five grades younger. Yeah, that's how I understand. Uh, he was like a little kid who's now their age and their classmate. I was watching some stuff on this and there's like, there's a character in the comics named Brad who like bullies Peter Parker in like one comic. So the director, somebody did like a deep dive, tons of comics, found this one character, used the name and reused the character. Small little nods are just very, very cool how they, they do that. They're always thinking ahead. I don't know yeah. that they always will use everything that they plant a seed for. I, I assume not. But even, you know, something as, sim- as simple as in the last Spider-Man movie, Homecoming, the character played by Donald Glover, I believe in the comics, is Miles Morales' uncle. Sure. Now, will yeah. Miles Morales appear in the MCU? Maybe, maybe not. But they've certainly left open the door for them to do that if they ever choose to and for it to make narrative cohesive sense, which just shows that this is a film series that is in the hands of people who are thinking very deeply about the current movies and also the future movies and how they're going to tie together. And it's why no matter what direction these movies ever go in, I always leave just fully trusting that these people know what they're doing and that it's going to be good. Let's veer to what I'm going to call the second part of the movie, very much built on the character Mysterio, who we're introduced to right in the in the first scene. Mysterio is fighting these elemental creatures somewhere in Mexico, and he's confronted by Nick Fury and Maria Hill. What did you guys think of that character? You could also talk about what you thought of Jake Gyllenhaal and the way he portrayed him. I'm a pretty big Jake Gyllenhaal fan. I think most of the stuff that he does comes out really good. I recently saw Nightcrawler. Nightcrawler um, is, ama- is amazing, and yeah, Nick Gyllenhaal is character. amazing he plays such an intense character in that, and I thought he brought like kind of a part of that, especially when he starts revealing his plan and you see him like being, you know, kind of mustache twirly and, and giving away what his plan is. I also loved how they got the Mysterio name that it just kind of came from the news report and that mysterious in Italian is Mysterio. And that's how they mm-hmm. named him that didn't name him after the professional wrestler. Like I was assuming they would. I saw the twist coming. I think because I knew Mysterio was a villain of Spider-Man's, especially when they're sitting in the bar and Mysterio is in his full Mysterio costume after saving the city and nobody's even reacting to them sitting in the bar together. I was like, okay, this must be, you know, this must be something, some sort of illusion. I knew that that was kind of what his power was that he creates illusions. So it didn't ruin that character for me, but I definitely saw that twist coming and it was, I was not at all surprised. And it did remind me of, of another Marvel movie as well that we can get into. Anybody who knows anything about comics or, or watched the TV show uh, in the 90s, as I did as well, knew it was coming. But, this, you know, for, but like, I went with my 10-year-old daughter. I'm, I'm starting to drag her along to these movies. And she didn't know. You know like, so for her, it was like, oh, wow. What, what I liked, though, was this whole take on what's real and what's not that he introduced and you know how that's kind of going on now with in in the world fake news and all that stuff and they took that and they went with that 
is he is he the bad guy? Is he not? All the misdirects. The story goes that after Spider-Man won in two thousand in the early two thousands, uh, Tobey Maguire had like hurt his back and and was asking for a lot more money because he saw how successful it was. And the studio called his bluff and said, "Fine, we're replacing you with none other than Jake Gyllenhaal." And Jake Gyllenhaal was meant to become Spider-Man. So it's kind of funny. And then he, he gave in and took the low, lower amount and, and the rest is history. But it's funny that in this movie, Jake Gyllenhaal is trying to be Spider-Man. He's trying to trick the world when he himself was going to play that actor you know, 15 years ago. I always get Jake Gyllenhaal and Tobey Maguire confused. And even when I was yeah. like bringing up Nightcrawler and I was like, I think that's Jake Gyllenhaal. But then I was like, wait, might have been. I don't know. For some and, reason, I and Ryan got, Reynolds, they're all like the same person. Yeah. Yeah. I there's certain actors that I always get confused in there's, my mind, and yeah. uh, Tobey Maguire and Jake Gyllenhaal are are one of those. But again, there's always like a theme in these movies, and I think the rom com was like the first theme, and then the second half theme was just like what's real and what's not, and and there was like a, with a bunch of different storylines, and I and actually I really like that. Yeah, yeah it definitely so- touches on current events for sure. Um, yeah. So I, I agree. I thought Mysterio was overall a really good, exciting, interesting villain. If I have one criticism about this movie, I think it's that his motivations and what exactly his plan and what he was trying to accomplish was just a little fuzzy to me. I'm not a comics book person, but I understand that Mysterio in the comics it was, you know, this special effects whiz. And it seems like, from what I read at least, that he kind of just gets off on manipulating people and that the manipulation is kind of the point, not necessarily the ends. And I didn't. I wasn't sure if that totally tracked in this movie. Yeah, I, I think his motivations were he wanted to become the next Tony Stark and be the big savior. It's kind of like uh, as as a Bulls fan. Let me, you know, I remember for a long time it was like, who's the next Michael Jordan? You know, and like when somebody like that leaves, you know, you you kind of want to look for that next Jordan. So I think that it was the same idea. Like, who's the next Iron Man? And that was part of the theme of this movie. And Jake Gyllenhaal is like, well, I want to be the next Iron Man because I'm smart and I could do it. And Spider-Man really should be coming the next Iron Man. Well, that's what Tony wanted. And I think that was his motivation, not to mention he just felt spurned by, by Iron Man, which is kind of funny because there's so many villains that became that, you know, because Tony Stark messed him over or, or whatnot. You know, you saw that in the Iron Man trilogy. There's this big scene in the middle where the reveal happens, where it basically takes place at this bar and we meet the rest of Mysterio's team, which turns out in a, what I thought was a really cool twist to be all of these kind of background characters from the Iron Man movies and these people that feel like Tony Stark had screwed them over over the years. Did you feel the rest of the team and Mysterio had the same goals? Because at least just from that one scene, you know, he makes his comment about how a toast to all my soon to be wealthy friends or something like that. It seemed to me like maybe they were just wanted to use this to get money slash power. And he just had his own motivation to actually become the superhero again like I, I feel like maybe that just wasn't well explained because I, even now I'm still not 100% sure whether they were all always on the same page does Mysterio kind of verge off from them in the middle because you know there's that scene where they kind of think he's going too far and he holds them all hostage and says he's going to basically kill them unless he does what they say Zach what was your read on that it's kind of comic book logic right you have the guy who wants to be the big star the big hero and then the rest of his team can't all be the big heroes also. So what is he, you know, how is he luring them to his side? And it seemed like they were all disgruntled Stark employees because Tony Stark during his life, even up towards the end, was a jerk to people and, you know, walked all over people and things like that. For me, it tracked, it also reminded me quite a bit of Iron Man 3 in a few different ways. So have you guys Mm. seen Iron Man 3? Yeah, Yeah. for sure. Yeah, I know what you're talking about. So the twist in the middle with the the whole Mandarin thing, this reminded me quite a bit of this. I actually thought that it was almost too similar to that. Just kind of the opposite. You're following a character, you think he's a hero for the first half of the movie, and then you find out he's a villain versus the other way around where 
in Iron Man 3, you thought Mandarin was the big villain, and it turned out the big villain in that was not Mandarin, that was an illusion. The big villain was a disgruntled Tony Stark employee. Avengers Endgame ends with the dramatic death of Tony Stark and Robert Downey Jr.'s seeming exit from the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And then, of course, we come to see the next movie, and Tony Stark and Robert Downey Jr. are very much a part of this movie. The specter of Tony Stark is, is one of the main ideas that looms over this movie. It's both the motivation for the villains to get revenge against Tony Stark and Stark Industries. And as one of you said earlier, Peter's main character arc in this movie is whether he can serve as the rightful heir to Tony Stark. I thought, you know, one of my favorite scenes of this movie is kind of towards the end where he kind of is sitting at the dashboard the way we've seen Robert Downey Jr. do so many times and basically become the new Iron Man. We get the Spider-Man theme and then it immediately cuts to Back in Black, although Peter seems to think it's Led Zeppelin. Um, <laughs> of course, we all know Back in Black was the, the song that plays over the opening moments of the original Iron Man. So I thought that was just like a really cool musical flourish. Peter Parker taking over for Tony Stark going forward. What that guys- was my favorite scene in the movie. Yeah, I, 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 I really, agree. I didn't get like choked up watching it, but I, I just felt like all kinds of emotions watching that. And I don't, I don't know why, because I'm not even that big of an Iron Man fan. Like I like Captain America a lot more than Iron Man, but that scene when when that was going on i was like i am so into this right now this is awesome yeah i totally yeah. agree and you know all the deaths that happened at, at the end of avengers infinity war there was none that hit me the way peter blurring away as tony stark is holding him and he's telling him i don't want to go and then when he came back that was like the one that gave me the biggest just like hop in my step even though you know of course these people were all coming back but just seeing him back on screen and kind of making eye contact with robert downey jr i just thought that their relationship over the course of these movies has been really really well done yeah i i I happen to agree with zach that that was probably my favorite part of the movie not including the after credits and you know how how peter puts his hand in the virtual glove just like tony did and that's really what it comes down to why i just love the mcu is how like they could just have these like little callbacks and again to my my 10 year old daughter she didn't understand that like really but for somebody like me who just like i'm so invested i've seen all the movies i know everything about this and you get this little nod to like the iron man one which by the way there were many nods to iron man one that was just very very powerful and and awesome how they do that and i just i i would say i was like totally fanboying uh, at that moment Yeah, so as we said, you know, one of the main themes of this movie is all about what's real and what's fake. You know, there's a lot of stuff about the fake news. Mysterio has this line of, you know, people will believe what they need to believe. People need to believe in a hero. Spider-Man's identity continues for the most of this movie to be a secret. I think he's probably the only character left in the MCU that has a secret identity going into this movie. And obviously, you know, that takes us to the mid-credits and post-credits scenes, which both really played on this theme of what's real and what's fake and how do we tell the difference. We have this mid-credits scene. The movie ends with Peter and MJ swinging through the streets of Manhattan, and we turn and we see that there's you know breaking news on the Times Square billboards, and they've uploaded footage that Mysterio has provided or an ally of Mysterio has provided that is doctored to make it look like Peter Parker and not Mysterio was the villain of everything that went on with the elementals. And then out of nowhere, we then all of a sudden it appears on the screen, J.K. Simmons in one of the best cameos I've ever seen. He reprises his role as J. Jonah Jameson from the Sam Raimi Spider-Man series. He seems to be some sort of Alex Jones type shock jock. And he outs, Peter Parker as the true identity of Spider-Man. I'll tell you, I don't know what you guys thought about this. My theater absolutely lost its mind when J.K. Simmons appeared on screen. 
Yeah, that mine yeah. did too. And I had seen some headlines that that mid credit scene, you know, so I didn't, I knew something happened in the mid and post credit scenes, but I didn't know what. So I was, you know, when they're just swinging, I was like, all right, well, what's the twist going to be that, you know, it's not, it can't just be them swinging. And when J.K. Simmons shows up as J. Jonah Jameson, I was like, oh, that is, that is so great that they got him to reprise the role. Actually, if you look on Letterboxd at this movie, they do list J.K. Uh, Simmons in the cast. So if you did happen to look at, you know, IMDb hmm. or Letterboxd before you saw the movie, you might have been spoiled on that, which is definitely a bummer. That was one of the greatest MCU moments that I've ever seen. I mean, I love the originals. Like I said, I really, those original Spider-Man movies, I was a huge fan. They meant a lot to me. And oh my God, that like Joe, <laughs> J.K. Simmons is phenomenal. And yeah, I, again, more fanboying. All right. So that takes us to the post credit scene, which I would say oh, not, not as good, but more consequential and possibly the most consequential of any post credit scene we've had in the MCU thus far quick uh, synopsis so basically we return and we see Nick Fury and Maria Hill kind of you know debriefing the mission and we all of a sudden see that it's revealed that no that's not Nick Fury and Maria Hill this entire movie that is two scrolls from Captain Marvel named Talos and Sorin if, if you didn't see that that movie then you're going to be completely lost if you if you did see Captain Marvel you're probably only 95% lost yeah I was still lost and I saw Captain Marvel yeah so you know it turns out that the entire movie at least and I guess we'll get back to that in terms of how long this has been going on for been these scrolls shape-shifting and impersonating those two characters and we then kind of zoom out a little bit and see that okay well they're not Nick Fury but they're acting at the direction of Nick Fury who now is aboard a spaceship where he's in charge of this team of scrolls presumably continuing their mission from the end of Captain Marvel to find a new planet for them to live on but I guess we don't really know Josh what was your reaction to that Look, I'll, I won't be, I wasn't completely surprised. There's a, uh, I'm not a huge modern comic uh, reader at all. Actually, I don't read any modern comics. I haven't read in many years, but um, there's a whole storyline called Secret Invasions, apparently, in the comics where scrolls come into uh, Earth and sort of act out as characters, although they're bad guys. Um, and I've read, I've read things where like Kevin Feige has always wanted to do that storyline. So it's always been like a possibility, I felt, that it could happen. But my big question is like, how long have the scrolls been acting as Nick Fury and Maria Hill? You know, you start questioning, well, how far back does it go? I mean, obviously this movie makes sense just because Nick Fury was like out of character. He, he fell for the whole Mysterio thing. Maria Hill was talking a little uh, obnoxiously to him at one point. You know, those things are very out of character for who they are. Yeah, and one specific thing, I did not pick up on this myself, but I read about it, is that in the very first scene that they appear in, which I think is the cold open of the movie, uh, Maria calls him Nick which as yes. we know from Captain Marvel, Captain Marvel. nobody yeah. calls him Nick. Nicholas only calls him Fury. Oh, I didn't even realize that. Yeah, yeah, I, I, yeah. I didn't catch that either. But, you know, obviously they, they wanted to drop in something that, you know, when you rewatch it, you might say, oh, okay, from the very beginning of the movie, at least, this is what's been going on. I know that there are videos circulating on the internet that try to see how far back this goes, whether, you know, are, are we going to go all the way back to the 1990s now and say that this has been fake Nick Fury since then? I yeah. highly doubt that. And I hope not, because then that means that this character we've been watching is like very inconsistent. So I would I would prefer if it was a more recent thing, maybe since Endgame or maybe since he was killed in uh, Captain America Winter Soldier or fake killed. But I, I don't want it to be like the whole time we've seen Nick Fury. It's not actually been Nick Fury. It's been the squirrels. Well, here's, here's a couple thoughts on that. One kind of ridiculous thing going around that in Captain Marvel, he says, I never cut my toast diagonally. I won't eat it. You know, something absurd like that. And then if you go back to Age of Ultron, uh, when he goes to Hawkeye's farm, 
he cuts his sandwich diagonally. So one could say, well, that's obviously not Nick Fury. He's cutting it diagonally. It must be the scroll. On the other hand, well, that's not toast. It's a sandwich. So if you want to get really ridiculously nitty picky, <laughs> you could go there. But I always remember back in Winter Soldier, he was presumed dead and he had to go hiding. And that's why he wasn't in a bunch of movies. So like all of a sudden he's alive. And like, it, it could make sense that like he sort of fell off the map and all this time and he's having these guys cover for him here and there but like maybe the scroll saved him after he yeah. was like presumed but maybe after and, he had to like go hiding he he went to space or something I, I right and they, they had to take him to yeah. whatever space technology they had to bring him back to life and then that was when right. they swapped him. i mean I, I would imagine at some point you know they're definitely setting up some movie where we're going to find out about this no i think that most of all i trust them that they know what they're doing this doesn't make sense to me now but i'm sure they understand what they're doing and they see the big picture which brings us to final thoughts and what comes next one thing that i'll just reflect on that we didn't really cover um i thought that zendaya in this movie was fantastic i think she's an amazing character um everything else that i've seen her in she's also been really good she obviously is not a very traditional romantic interest she is has a very like dry personality and very sarcastic and kind of weird and into conspiracy theories and all that sort of stuff so that was kind of a very refreshing change of pace for the female lead of a movie all right josh uh you have some easter eggs for us let's give us two or three of what you thought were the most fun or interesting okay so as we know there's a nice nod at the end to the original spider-man there's actually another nod to the original spider-man which Lincoln, you'll miss it. Um, when Happy's giving the check at the beginning of the movie, there's a poster for two wrestlers behind him. One is for Crusher Hogan, who's the wrestler Peter fights in the original comics in the first uh, issue. And the second one, and he covers it, is for a wrestler named Bonesaw McGraw. And if you remember, Bonesaw McGraw is in the original Spider-Man. When Ray rest in peace, Macho Man Randy Savage, Bonesaw. He's the guy that he plays and, and uh, he's at the match. So that was pretty cool. A nice little nod. There's a ton of different, if you want to research it, go online. There's a ton of different, every single um, license plate in the movie is a uh, nod to a comic, like a abbreviation to a different comic and what's you know about to happen. And I also, again, I don't know if this is an Easter egg, I thought it was interesting uh, take that I heard is that why is Peter's spidey sense, or as he called it, Peter Tingle off the whole movie? And the idea I heard is because, like, and I've mentioned this before, when at the end of Endgame, he's the only one who sort of feels himself dying because he has the Spidey sense. So the last memories he has of the Spidey sense is like death. And then he has Tony Stark die, like in the next thing. So it could be that that's why his spider sense is off because he's just like had so much bad experiences with that. I like that. We mentioned all the nods to Iron Man one on the, on the plane with, uh, there's another quick line that they quote Shakespeare, somebody that uneasy lies the head that wears the crown, which could be a nod to with great power comes great responsibility. And the last thing is you see on Peter's uh, suitcase BFP, which is Ben uh, Franklin Parker, Uncle Ben. So yes, like I caught that one as well. Yes, was, that's, that's a nod. And the last really ridiculous Easter egg, but who knows, when Happy gives um, uh, Nick, Nick Fury the, the coded message that bad is that he says something about his surfboard, Maybe it's not the Silver Surfer. I don't know. But I, so I was actually going to ask you about that one because I was going to I was going to see if I'm just like way out there with like a crazy conspiracy. It's been mentioned, and that would be awesome because he's a really cool character, and they have the rights now. But yeah. it could also just be a nod that Nick Fury was sitting on a fake beach. 
you know, select surf <laughs> beach. Oh, so then, yeah. then I started doubting my own, my own like silver surfer conspiracy. But I, that's also what I, when I heard the surfboard, I was like, I turned to my friend who I was seeing it with. I was like, I think that's silver surfer and they're setting that yeah. up. <laughs> it could be, it could be. Yeah. All right, Zach, any final thoughts, questions, comments? So, yeah, I, uh, I asked my friend Brennan Fitzpatrick if he had any questions about this for our podcast. And we've covered most of what he talked about. And it's kind of a question for you, Av, because I, I know the answer with Josh. Av, were you familiar with Mysterio as a villain before seeing this movie? No, I wasn't at all. I didn't even see the trailers that much, but I kind of went into the movie expecting him to be the villain just because what else would he be? And then when he's kind of introduced, I was like, oh, so maybe he's a good guy. But at the same time, I was like, yeah, but that doesn't really make sense. There's not going to be a new good guy. Um, so I kind of thought he was going to turn the whole movie just based on just movie logic. But I, I definitely did not know anything about him coming in. And, you know, I thought they did a very good job otherwise and kind of tricking you into thinking that he might be a good guy. Because I, I, I temporarily bought in, even though my Av tingle told me something's <laughs> off about this guy. I thought he was going to be a villain for sure. But then the whole, like, other world, because I did think after Endgame, I, I thought what we're going to start seeing is villains coming that were as a result of all of their time travel shenanigans that were, like, created as a result of that. Um, which is what they teased in this movie and doesn't seem like they're going that way anymore because this was fake, but I guess we will see as we get into other movies. Yeah, we'll see. And, you know, thinking forward, one of the things that's fascinating about the future of the MCU and Spider-Man is that Tom Holland is so good and he's still, I don't know how old he is, but he just looks so young that he can, still, yeah, he can stay in this role for a long time. And, and he said he wants to also. Yeah. He gave an interview and, this week. I mean, the idea of just him growing with the character and, you know, doing a young adult version of Peter Parker and then, you know, maybe a late 20s where he starts to have a family and a career and all that sort of stuff. The possibilities are really endless when you have someone who's this good and seems to be really committed. My main criticism of this movie is there was not nearly enough J.B. Smoove in this movie for what I want. Like, his, his, he was so funny and he's so funny and everything. And I just felt like they could have used him a lot more. All right, guys. So, you know, this was a lot of fun. It uh, sounds like we all really loved Spider-Man Far From Home. And if you're still listening, then if you haven't seen it yet, you've had the entire movie spoiled for you. So I would still say go see it. But, but it was good to have a Sammy and Will podcast without Sammy and Will. Yeah, we'll see how that yeah, works out. And, and by the way, uh, I, I doubt he's listening, but I'm really happy that we got to do this because I know Chester and Keeve are like anti-MCU. So this is kind of like sticking it to them that we're doing a a massive pod on just an MCU movie. So we should put all kinds of Easter eggs, anti-Chester and Kiwi Easter eggs at the end of this. (laughs) It is frustrating for me because I would love to see a Chester level, like breakdown of the movies and like list of this and that. I think he'd be great at it. Right, that was a lot of fun. I hope you guys enjoyed that. Up next, you can join Will and Zach and I as we take a trip to Sweden with Ari Aster as our tour guide for our review of Midsummer. I told you that I want to go to that festival in Sweden. No, you said it would be cool to go. Yeah, and then I got the opportunity and I decided Look, I to do it. I don't mind you going. I just wish you would have told me. That's all. Midsummer is the second feature by filmmaker Ari Aster. It stars Florence Pugh, Jack Rayner, William Jackson Harper, Wilhelm Blomgren, and Will Poulter. 
With the relationship in trouble, a young American couple travels to a fabled Swedish midsummer festival, where a seemingly pastoral paradise transforms into a sinister, dread-soaked nightmare as the locals reveal their terrifying agenda. Hey Will, hey Zach, thanks for joining me here. I'm really excited to talk about this movie. I know both of you have had the opportunity to see it. Just as a public service announcement, we're going to start with a brief overview where we're going to avoid any spoilers, and then we'll go into a full spoiler discussion of the movie where all details in the movies are fair game. So Will, I figured I would start with you. I know you're a big fan of horror in general, and I know that you also really liked Hereditary last year, which was Ari Aster's directorial debut. So start us off. What did you like about Hereditary? What were your expectations coming into this follow-up? And did Midsummer live up to the level of Hereditary? Yes. Yeah, so I thought Hereditary was a really uh, one of the most depressing movies of last year. Uh, it's really just like a family drama disguised as a horror movie, and through most of it, it's just about this family, you know, dealing with tragedy, dealing with the grief, and then at the end, you know, it turns into more culty demon possession your typical horror stuff so going into this one i wasn't really sure what to expect uh the trailers gave it sort of like a wicker man vibe and basically i wasn't super surprised by anything in this movie but that wasn't necessarily a bad thing i thought it was much more concise in what it wanted to say than hereditary was and it felt like it was the same type of movie all the way through Concise is an interesting uh, word to use for a movie that was two hours and 40 minutes long, but (laughs) I certainly hear where you're coming from. Yeah, I I kind of had a a similar feeling on Hereditary. I kind of felt like it was two different movies where I thought the first hour was absolutely marvelous. There's this incredible family drama that just built tension and really explored ideas of family and the demons that we get from our parents and our ancestors and whether or not we can ever move on from that and become our own people or whether that's something that's always going to follow us. And then the movie kind of just goes into becoming a, an actual horror movie with fantasy elements and spirits and seances and all sorts of weird stuff that kind of lost me. It really just took me for a whirl in a way that I didn't expect and kind of left me a little bit cold. Zach, I know you just saw this movie, so you probably haven't even had a chance to read anything or think that much about it. What is your instant take on Midsummer? So I saw it like just a little over 12 hours ago and I, I just don't think that I got it as much as other people did. Um, I really liked the beginning, the first half hour, 45 minutes of it. Oh, the family drama and seeing the, the kind of human interaction between Danny and her boyfriend, Christian um, and his friends. But I just thought that as it got, you know, kind of, I guess, wicker Manny for the lack of a better term, it just, it just turned too much into like cult, demony seance whatever you want to call it like what i didn't like about hereditary hereditary i, I kind of had the same feeling where i really liked the family stuff but once it got got kind of weird and devilish towards the end i was a little bit more out on that movie although i still thought it was a really well-made movie and i do believe that hereditary ended up in my top 10 last year um because just for for one reason alone basically because it was the only movie that i can ever remember where i was so close to walking out of the theater during hereditary yeah, usually that's a bad thing. Yeah, but it, it affected me so well. You know, it, it really, yeah, I stuck yeah. it out and it was like, wow, if a movie can inspire that kind of reaction from me, uh, that deserves a place in my top 10. Yeah, it was intentionally very troubling. And I think it really su- succeeded at what it was trying to do in that department. 
Yeah, I'm surprised how popular both Hereditary and Midsummer seem to be with just how disturbing they are. And I think say what you will about both of these movies. I think there are two overarching conclusions that I have about Ari Aster based on these two movies that I've seen. Number one is there is something seriously wrong with him. Uh, I don't know what, what happened in his past. I actually had a chance to quickly the other day watch his first movie. It was a short film that he directed, I think, about 10 years ago called The Strange Thing About the Johnsons. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, the very first scene is a kid in his bed and he's masturbating in his bed and his father, you know, walks in and stumbles upon him and quickly apologizes and they have, you know, a frank heart to heart about all that sort of stuff and then when his father leaves the room it zooms out and you see that he was masturbating to a picture of his father <laughs> yeah that was a, a weird short yeah that's the yeah. first scene of the movie and then you, you know it kind of goes from there the second thing that i would conclude about ari aster and there were parts of the, both of these movies that i really loved and parts that i didn't really love but his craft for filmmaking is absolutely off the charts for somebody who is this young and this early on in his career. The level of specificity that went into a lot of the scenes in this movie, especially once we get to Sweden to the cult community and you know, just the flowers and the different rituals. It's just, he really built a whole world and a whole culture that by the time you exit this movie, you feel like you maybe don't understand these people, but you've gotten to know them and you kind of have an, an appreciation for their way of life. Yeah, it was uh, it was beautiful, too. I saw it on a really large screen yesterday at a theater, and it, it, it deserves to be seen on as large of a screen as possible. Some of the, the scenery that you see when they get to Sweden and, and the nature shots just look amazing, and it is very well-crafted. I will give it that for sure. Yeah, I thought the thing that was most striking about the way this movie was made was the way it's filled with light, which becomes a point of the plot throughout the course of the movie is that it remains light even during the nighttime. And normally horror movies, you're trained to expecting all the scary stuff to happen at night. And this kind of throws you for a loop with that. And that's in a constant daylight kind of becomes jarring and in a way puts a spell on you. You know, maybe what he's going for is that we expect that it's at nighttime when the monsters come out, but when human beings have the light shown on them, that's when we really see the dark sides of ourselves. I thought that was just like a really interesting way to frame the movie and I thought really was effective. But the opening scene of the movie does take place at nighttime. Um, oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Good call. So. Yeah, so that's definitely uh, a contrast. And um, I think, you know, we'll, we'll talk about later some other contrasts between that opening prologue type scene and things that happen later in the movie. Okay, so that was our spoiler-free review of Midsummer. If you're, you've seen the movie and want to continue listening, we'd love to have you. Otherwise, you should stop here because we're about to spoil Midsummer. So as you mentioned, we, uh, we opened with this prologue, which I thought worked really well as a short film. If that was just an entire movie, it was just really well-crafted. We meet this college student named Danny and she's in a relationship with her boyfriend and there's stuff going on with her sister that we're not really sure about. She seems to, from her boyfriend's perspective, be the girl who cried, my sister is bipolar and is going to kill herself unless you come help me. And he seems to be kind of fed up with this act. And his friends are giving him a hard time. We have one guy who's played by Will Poulter, who seems to always play these swarmy characters. He was uh, in that Bandersnatch Black Mirror movie. He played a swarmy character there as well. And they're That's kind of- where I recognized him from. I could not oh, yeah. figure out when I was watching that. I was like, where did I know that guy from? <laughs> he was also in uh, We're the Millers and the Maze Runner trilogy. No, I missed both of those, unfortunately. 
And uh, Christian's other friend is uh, this guy named Josh, who's played by Chidi from The Good Place. And they're all basically telling him, you got to break up with her. You know, she's old. She never wants to leave you alone. And it becomes, we get a pretty good sense of the dynamic of the relationship. You know, we have a kind of emotionally fragile woman dating a guy who doesn't really have the capacity to support her emotionally and be there for her and thinks that she's always exaggerating and hyperventilating over things that aren't really a big deal. And then lo and behold, we learn that in fact, his, her sister has not only killed herself, she's also killed her two parents using the carbon dioxide from the car pipes and yeah. Is carbon monoxide? Carbon monoxide. Yeah, whatever. Yeah. Well, this uh, isn't a science podcast. No. Yeah, that's right. That's exact right. Exact method. It was it? yeah. It was poison. It was poison gas. This opening prologue ends with her, you know, sobbing uncontrollably, laying on his lap as he kind of just looks emotionally distant and removed, kind of like he doesn't really want to be there. But now he's kind of stuck in the relationship because he can't really break up with the girl after her sister kills herself and her two parents. What did you guys think about that opening of the movie? I, as I said, I thought it was really fantastic. Yeah, I thought it was a really great way to get us to just immediately connect with this uh, main character, uh, connect with all the, you know, tragedy she's going through in her life. And you, you, you know, you understand where both people in the relationship are coming from. Uh, Ari Aster really knows how to just make things really depressing right from the jump. Yeah, I had a real sense of helplessness watching that. Um, and I could feel her helplessness. She gets this email from her sister that terrifies her. And you see all the times that she's tried to uh, call her sister and her parents mm-hmm. and other people who might be able to help. And um, I don't know if it's ever kind of explained how far away she lives, but um, I've lived far away from family before and kind of felt that helplessness where you know, your family is, has something going on or there's a tragedy and you can't get there to do anything and you're just trying to get as much information as you can. And that right away, I was like, all right, I am in on this movie. This is powerful and this is moving me. Yeah, and I, I thought it actually played up what I thought was an interesting kind of modern horror thing that like one of the things that is most horrifying about this day and age is the feeling of being disconnected where you just can't Mm -hmm. reach, you can't reach people and you don't know what's going on and you're refreshing your phone and you just can't find out the information you want to have, whether it's, you know, whether your sister Mm -hmm. has killed her parents or, you know, which team Kevin Durant is going to sign with. Just have like this in your stomach and there's nothing you could do about it because you don't have equally important struggles. So yeah, I, I thought that was all really, really effective. And then, so we jump forward a little bit in time. I don't think it really says how much. And it becomes clear that- At least that, six months though, because we go from snow to summer. So we're go. at least going from either six months or a year and a half. So There you go. Okay, great. It comes out that Christian, together with this other group of friends and a new guy we meet named Pele, are planning a trip to Sweden. And he has a fight with- Danny because she kind of finds out about it by accident and they engage what is probably a fairly typical couple's fight about sharing of information etc and I really felt like I resonated with Danny in this fight even though you know normally I'm probably on the opposite end of that because he's just like totally gaslighting her in this conversation and pretending like it's a totally normal thing that he planned a multi-week trip to Sweden without even mentioning it to her. Yeah, uh, I was just starting to totally hate him <laughs> as this as this went on because he was just like, you know, like you want me to apologize? I already apologized. Is it's just like classic gaslighting boyfriend. Yeah, I felt like during that scene, kind of, you know, I knew what I was in for. That I was in for kind of a psychological thriller or horror type movie. So it just seemed so unreal that that could even happen. That he could plan this trip without her knowing. That I almost was like taken out of it because I was like, all right, well, what? 
what's really going on here? You know, is she hallucinating this or what, what is she not remembering or something? Oh, um, really? so that, yeah, that I was expecting it was going to be something a little bit different than just that he was like a terrible boyfriend. Yeah. So basically uh, as a result of their fight, it seems what has happened is that Christian basically gets guilted into inviting Daniel Long on the trip and there was a very weird scene that I don't think they ever really explained where he tells his friends, okay, I told Danny she could come on the trip, but don't worry, she's not going to come. And then next thing we know, she's going on the trip. I don't know if that was just kind of like hand waved and we're supposed to understand that, of course, she's coming once he's inviting her. But I don't, I don't know. I don't, I don't know if I missed something there. Was there something that I didn't really pick up on? Well, uh, didn't the Swedish friend kind of convince her to come with the picture? Yeah. Yeah, I think he convinced her. And I think... You know, it makes sense that he wouldn't expect her to actually come, like, with all the, like, grief she's been going through. But her decision to come ended up making sense to me. And yeah. she was kind of manipulated into coming, too, because, you know, yeah. I think that he definitely think- wanted her to be there. Yeah, his for name is, uh, Yeah, so, so basically, fine. So they all are going to go to Sweden. Uh, they get there. Basically, the first thing they do is take some sort of hallucinogenic drugs. I don't know if it was mushrooms or LSD. I would say there's probably no movie that has ever made me not want to do drugs ever in my (laughs) life than this movie because the... You should watch Climax. Okay, I'll check that out next. So just to uh, double down on my desire not to do hard drugs. There was one shot in this movie that really struck out to me as they kind of enter the the commune where the Harga, which is the name of the cult slash community that we meet um, a shot where as the car is driving in this the camera kind of turns upside down and kind of stays like that for a little while which mm-hmm. will you'll, you'll know better than me i think that's a, a fairly typical horror trope to kind of show you know things are going to go topsy-turvy from here on out but that one was just was much more noticeable and i thought effective than i'm used to seeing yeah it was even very closely echoed the scene where in hereditary uh, when I forget the woman's name, but you know Tony Collette's character is walking towards Joan's apartment to where she finds it abandoned, and there's this like shrine of Peter built there, and I feel like that's where things really start to go off the deep end in that movie, and it was a similar a similar technique used here. Yeah, I was trying to remember if in Hereditary they used a lot of kind of overhead shots and upside down shots because it seemed familiar in this movie. I, I was mm-hmm. just I was trying to place it, and so I think probably it was from Hereditary. Okay, so they, you know, they start spending some time in the village and they get to know people. And then we have a scene, which I think is really where the movie starts to kick into high gear. And we get the idea that there's something more bizarre going on with this culture than we maybe expected, or at least characters in the movie expected. So they have this scene where first Pele explains to them that, you know, every person has four seasons to their life. And I guess this relates to what you were talking about earlier, Zach, with the seasons, and that the four seasons mm-hmm. kind of match up to 18, four 18-year periods in your life, zero to 18, 18 to 36, 36 to 54, 54 to 72. And so one of them asks Pele, oh, so what happens at 72? And he kind of makes the, you know, slit throat, they die symbol. And everyone kind of laughs it off. I immediately thought, oh, we're about to see some old people die. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I was like, yeah, he's not joking about that. No, yeah, so, definitely not. So they have this ceremony where the two oldest people in the village, um, I think they might have been husband and wife, but I'm not sure. They basically climb up to this cliff and the woman just jumps off head first and immediately dies on impact. Then the man jumps off foot first for some reason, like an idiot. Yeah. And, yeah. I don't know what he was thinking. You saw what just happened to the woman. He lands feet first. He breaks one or both of his legs and is there like writhing in pain. The rest of the villagers say, don't worry, we'll help you. And they come over and they beat him to death with uh, a wooden mallet. 
until his his head is bashed in. And he also had this interesting thing where, like, as he's there writhing in pain, all the, like, villagers are just like, oh, oh, like, they're all, like, echoing or, like, mimicking his cries for pain, which is which so we weird. Which we see that throughout the movie, that they, yeah. they mimic those, that screaming. Yeah, that's uh, definitely a thing that they do where they, you know, maybe they're all, like, trying to be one person and kind of, you know, feel and empathize with everybody else's what they're going through. Yeah, so this is where, you know, our characters, or at least some of them, start to feel like, hmm, this doesn't seem quite right. You know, normally we don't watch people beat old people to death with mallets while everyone acts like this is normal. The one, the one person who seems to have known about this ahead of time is Josh, because I guess he mm-hmm. was writing his thesis on this community, so he knew about this ritual, and he's, you know, totally nonplussed by it. As we continue- one, one other part about one other point about that scene real quick. Um, mm-hmm. So my brother saw this movie and he he has it. I think he has it as his number one movie of the year so far. He absolutely loved this movie. He's now seen it twice and recommends rewatching this. He says you catch a lot more. I don't think I will be rewatching it. Uh, I plan but on it. He, yes. His read on that scene was he said that the man jumped feet first because he was not as much of a true believer in this culture as the woman was. And he says that as you rewatch it, you notice the man is not as bought in. And so it's kind of represented in him dro- jumping feet first versus head first. Oh yeah, so they also mm-hmm. explain that like the these old people dying is a way for their lives to be passed on to the newborns. And like the newborns take their take the names of these people. And at that point in the movie, I was like, oh, this, this like kind of makes sense. I understand why they think this is a thing they should do. Yeah, and I, and I guess there is something to, you know, once you reach a certain age, kind of going out on your own terms instead of getting old and fragile, especially when you live in some, you know, hippie commune where, you know, you're not going to be taken care of that well, probably. So yeah, I guess there, you know, it, it, it has a certain logic to it, even if it was also pretty horrifying to see. Yeah. So it did seem to me like, uh, you know, like when you go and study ancient civilizations, and that's what that kind of reminded me of, just the, the idea that the, the elderly take their own lives to pass it on to the next generation. Yeah, that's interesting. And I think also plays into the, you know, like the seasonal theme that we were talking about of just like dying and rebirth and regeneration. So people start disappearing randomly. And, you know, at this point, our characters should really start being more disturbed than they are. Um, I think a lot of that probably has to do with the drugs that (laughs) the the cult members make them keep taking. And as we said, you know, the long periods of lifetime is probably very disorienting. But there was this other, I think, a British couple that just both abruptly disappear. And then Mark, who is chastised for urinating on some sacred portion of the campgrounds, is chastised for that, and then immediately also invited to go have sex with a girl somewhere. And then he's kind of never seen from again, I believe. Well, they, How dumb they is that him. character? Yeah, well... I actually, this is a good time to touch on it. I feel like Will Poulter was totally wasted in this movie. Uh, He was given like nothing to do and he's such a great actor, but that character is just a total dumbass and his character just never really goes anywhere. Yeah, I mean, he's basically there to do drugs and have sex, which, you know, go to Vegas, go to New Orleans. (laughs) Why why are you going to this cult commune in Sweden if, you know, you just want to have a fun time? So then I think the next major thing that we see is Josh, who had previously asked if he could take pictures of their, you know, holy book and text that has all of their rituals written down in it and is told, of course not, this is top secret, no one's allowed to know about this. And so he sneaks away in the middle of the night to try to do so and is startled by 
someone behind him who appears to be wearing Will Poulter's face on it. And he then gets clubbed. And I think that's the last we see of Josh. Yep. He's dead. Yeah, so he's gone now. So I think the only people we have left now are our two main characters. We have Danny and we have Christian. And they are kind of kept apart from each other. They're, you know, they're trying to maybe figure out what's going on. There's a conversation where I don't know if it's if it was at this point or earlier in the movie where it comes clear that he forgot about her birthday. He doesn't really know how long that they've been dating for. Again, just further indications that you know, he's not really such a good guy. There's also a scene which, you know, we, we miss where he, after the cliff scene, he goes to Josh and says, oh, by the way, I'm going to do my thesis about this community now also. And Josh obviously is saying like, what the hell, you're stealing my thesis. And again, Christian completely gaslighting him and acting like this is a normal thing. And that, I don't know if he says he was planning it all along or what's the big deal, but he's basically directly stealing his idea and, and playing it off as if it's no no big thing. And I think, um, I'm not really sure why the whole, like, him stealing the other guy's thesis idea was included in the movie, other than just uh, giving the excuse to show us scenes of them asking more about the culture. Uh, and I think also that was intended for us to really just start to hate Christian even more and want him to suffer. Yeah, the the whole thesis thing was really confusing for me in general because yeah. they ask Pele for permission and he's like oh I have to ask the elders and then he gives them permission like it just it was all like distracting I thought it was going to lead to to something and yeah actually at that point in the movie I thought we were going to get some sort of twist in it where Christian actually was you know an ancient member of or not ancient but like had been a historical member of that cult or that group and we were going to get some sort of twist involving Christian actually having been involved with them or, or something, but it just didn't seem to really go anywhere with, besides giving Josh a reason to act like an idiot and take pictures in the middle of the night of their book. Yeah, basically. I was a little underwhelmed with how that didn't really go anywhere as well. Yeah. Okay, so then we, we come to the final portion of the movie. We kind of have a two rituals happening kind of simultaneously to each other. Number one involves Danny, where she is going to participate in a dance competition to determine who is going to be the next May Queen, which was a concept that was mentioned earlier in the movie. Simultaneously, we have Christian is told that he has been approved to mate with one of the female members of the group. So Christian is basically lured away to this temple where he's surrounded by a group of women who are all chanting as he starts having sex with this girl. One of the older women is nice enough to help him along at the very end by pushing him at at the back of the, the buttocks. I'm not sure what that was all about, but, you know, it was nice of her to get involved and help out. I think it, yeah. it plays more on that kind of everybody experiencing these emotions together. What we saw earlier with them all yelling simultaneously. I think I think there is a lot of kind of this community being empathetic uh, with each other. We do definitely see that throughout the movie. Yeah, for sure. So then Danny wins the dance competition, um, which I, I just thought the, you know, it, it sounds silly to say, but I thought the, the scene of the dance competition was really impressive, just like stunning to see with the flowers and the dancing. And it's like the first time in the movie that she seems like at peace and like that she's having a good time. So that was, yeah. just, that was interesting to see. It was really well shot and gorgeous. And I keep laughing that you're calling it a dance competition as well. <laughs> well, that's dance off. It was a dance off. Yeah, it was a dance right. Off. Yeah, I just I, I keep thinking of like you know America's Got Talent or like Dance Moms or something. And so you think you um, can dance? A little different. Yeah, exactly. 
She's named the, the, uh, the May Queen, and she looks over and sees that there's something going on in that other shack or temple, whatever we're calling it, and she peers in through the keyhole and presumably sees what's going on there, that her boyfriend is cheating on her. I don't know why this was like the last straw based on everything else that's going on at (laughs) this place. But she has a complete breakdown, starts sobbing in a a very similar way to she did in that prologue scene. Only this time, instead of having a removed boyfriend kind of just sitting there patting her on the head, as Zach has said, we have this entire community that is holding her and screaming with her and really trying to channel her emotions as if they're all one being. I thought this was the most powerful scene in the movie. And this was where I really started to understand what the movie was going for. Uh, I feel like uh, overall, this movie is about Danny's uh, journey into like discovering a family and finding like a, an actual support system. Her boyfriend had never really been supportive of her emotion. But now when she's through this uh, sadness of discovering her boyfriend, having sex with this other girl, uh, all these people are just, you know, crying there with her, uh, screaming out in agony with her. Yeah, that's what my brother also said. You know, he had a lot of takes on this movie, and he said this movie was all about her finding a family, and she finally found a community yeah. that supported her. It, but my, my thing with that is, like, what she sees through the keyhole, right? She sees her boyfriend having sex with this woman, but clearly, like, there's some sort of uh, ceremony going on. That, you know, he has people helping him along, and there's people yelling all around him. So it's not like he's, like, passionately going and cheating on her. Like, there's obviously more to it, so... It was interesting that that was what caused the breakdown. I, mean, I think I think when you see like your significant other having sex with another person, you don't really consider like the circumstances around it. <laughs> yeah, I guess I've just never been in that situation, so I just I, I can't <laughs> empathize like the rest of the community could. So Christian, he leaves the temple and he goes and he's stumbling along, trying to make sense of what's going on. He walks into another structure, and there he sees. I don't even know what, exactly what it was. You see like a pair of lungs hanging. Yeah, I think it was like Simon had been just sort of like disemboweled. Uh, Simon, the British guy. Uh, and his lungs were just like hanging outside his body, uh, like still breathing. So I guess he was still alive at that point. And yeah, I think the chickens were, were like just... slowly eating him or, or yeah. whatever. He turns around and there's another one of the elders from the community who blows some sort of dust in his face, which we later learn knocks him out and has now paralyzed him, rendered him unable to speak at all. He is basically brought before Danny, who is sitting on a throne of some sort as the new May Queen. We are explained that they have some sort of ritual that they do once every 90 years, they say, where... I don't know exactly what the purpose of it is, but they need to make nine sacrifices for outsiders, for insiders, and then a ninth person to be chosen by the May Queen. And Danny is given the choice. She can either have Christian serve as the ninth person, or there will be a a person randomly selected from the community. And if you don't know who she's going to choose, you haven't been paying attention to the movie or this podcast, Obviously, she chooses to kill her boyfriend. He is taken and put into a disemboweled bear. And yeah, we finally found out what the bear was for. Yeah. yeah. It was like lost. We see the bear at the beginning, but we actually found out what the point of it. Yeah. yeah so he's, his body is inserted inside this giant bear. The bear, along with the other the remains of whoever is left from the people that are being sacrificed, plus two new people are put into this house and volunteers volunteers did uh, we know who the two kind of scarecrow looking people were 
I thought that those were the two old people that jumped earlier and that they had kind of yes. them into puppets to uh, okay. that kind of rep- represent them. Because I, I think they say something like, some have already been sacrificed. And I think that's referencing the people that have already died, you know, outside the context of this fire ritual. So once all the people, whether they're dead or alive, are placed inside this house, the house is filled with straw and lit on fire. And as the fire starts bursting out into flames, we cut to Danny, who's sitting on her throne as May Queen, and we see her smile probably for the first time in a long time, and we cut to black. Yeah, it was a real happy ending. Uh, You know, it was interesting. It tied back into the beginning for me because her family died via smoke. Um, Mm -hmm. And it kind of goes full circle that what finally gives her some closure is the smoke coming out of this house. Yeah, and I thought it was really interesting the way that they made Christian have the, the paralysis and the inability to speak. I thought that was a really interesting parable for his personality throughout the movie. We basically have a character who throughout the whole movie has chosen the path of least resistance. He just like doesn't want to deal with his girlfriends and will mm-hmm. stay with her, not break up with her, let her come along on his guy's trip to Europe, all because he just like doesn't want to have an unpleasant conversation with her. And he basically ends up paralyzed and speechless as she orders him to be burnt alive. And I thought that was just a really fitting end for that character. Yeah, that's a great call. Um, and she, you know, she also was kind of paralyzed in the beginning um, in multiple ways. Way that One, that she couldn't help her family at all and couldn't do anything about it. But then, you know, she was paralyzed by grief after she lost them and she could just sit in his arms um, screaming at the beginning of the movie. Yeah. Um, so I had two kind of like plot questions that left me a little confused that I wasn't sure on. So one is just that, <laughs> well, well, yeah, two, two kind of big ones. So one is that, so there's a reference where Pele says earlier in the movie where he's trying to get to know Danny better and maybe manipulate her into coming that his parents died in a fire. And I think mm-hmm. we're supposed to take from that, that his parents died in a similar type ritual, except then they say that this ritual is done only every 90 years. So I wasn't sure if we were supposed to think that that is where they died, but that doesn't really make sense timeline-wise. Yeah, I didn't make the connection that they would have died in that fire. And I guess for the reasons you're saying, uh, I wasn't sure if he was actually born into the cult or not. Uh, maybe like his parents died in a fire and then he was just sort of like taken from an orphanage Adopted. and taken to this cult. Yeah. Yeah. That could he be. does call like everybody that's around his age, his brother and sister. Yeah. So... And I was a little confused by that, but um, I also didn't catch that it was only in every 90 years that they said. But at the same time, this is just the rituals we're seeing this one midsummer. So the next, you know, the 91st year, we might see a whole different set of rituals. Yeah. Well, we know this is like the least gruesome ritual that this cult does. <laughs> yeah. Right. Wait, wait till midsummer, too. It's going to be even bigger and, and bolder. Yeah. Um, the second question I had, I don't know if either of you had thought about this. This is a, a fan theory that I've seen. And one of the people that I saw the movie with thought this right away. And I, I'm kind of not sure about this, whether or not Pele slash the cult was involved from the very beginning in killing Danny's family to kind of lure her because they make a whole point of that. Her birthday is the exact right day for her to be the May queen. He really seems very invested in her coming on the trip, but at the same time, just like the lengths that they would have to go to just like don't add up. That's just like way too intricate of a plan. Yeah. I really hate this theory. Like it makes sense with hereditary, I guess, because there's like actual demonic activity involved, but for all we know, there isn't actually anything supernatural going on in this movie. Yeah. Um, and I think that's that's just really hard to believe. I mean, that that theory does help kind of uh, explain what goes on, though, because especially in the beginning, it's like, okay, I guess it was just a tragedy that she faced, but 
um, the way that her sister killed their family is just like really out there. And I mean, it, you know, it could have been one of those things where somebody did that to the sister and the family, but made it look like a suicide. I don't know. You know, it, it, there just wasn't enough there to necessarily make that connection. But I think that was my, in general, that was my big problem with this movie is like, not to sound like a dumb movie goer, but like, I just felt like there wasn't enough explaining as actually happened. And when it ended, I was just kind of like, all right, what the hell did I just watch? Yeah, one other uh, interesting thing that is that, so when Pele describes the four seasons, there's, you know, the 0 to 18, 18 to 36, 36 to 54, 54 to 72. So the age range that our characters would be in by being, you know, probably in their mid-20s would be Midsummer, which obviously mm-hmm. is the name of the movie, which I thought was uh, an interesting little tidbit. Oh, yeah, I like that. That makes sense. Yeah. And And they were, you know, we talked about being disconnected and how that is so hard and that's a fear that we all have and... I mean, talk about being disconnected. They're like four hours away from any city in Sweden, you know, completely disconnected from the rest of the world while they're there. Yeah, absolutely. So I think that's, you know, we've reached the end of the movie. I don't know if either of you have any more parting thoughts that you wanted to share. Did you guys like how they watched Austin Powers? What what was that about? That was so weird. (laughs) I think that was, there was a lot of like little lines thrown in that I'm sure were just like for comic relief. Uh, I feel like that was just intended to show like, these people aren't totally removed from the outside world. Like they do have some idea what's going on outside, uh, like in regular society, which makes it more weird that they still do all this weird culty stuff. Yeah. I was wondering what they do when they're not doing midsummer. Do they just yeah. go back to their normal lives? I don't know. They just yeah. like play chess. I, I, I did think, do I do think that just doing this podcast was helpful and for me in terms of like talking through this movie. Cause when I walked out of it last night, I was just like, what the hell? Like I need a drink. This was just weird. But now I, <laughs> I'm a little bit more of like come to grips with it and I can see, you know, some of the, the value in it. I, I'm sure I would appreciate rewatching this, but it, it'll be a while before I can make myself sit down and rewatch that movie, especially the. <laughs> I just, I've learned that I am not good with head trauma and at least the way Ari Aster does it. I think this is definitely a movie that benefits from, you know, spending time thinking about it, talking about it and then rewatching it. Because I would venture to guess there's probably a lot of things early in the movie that would be interesting to see once you kind of know where everything is headed. Yeah, I, I have had that. Um, I've been rewatching Under the Silver Lake the last few days, just kind of in pieces. And um, oh, nice. that movie works really well rewatched when you know where it's going. And it's not quite as disturbing as this. <laughs> yeah, definitely. That one's a lot more uh, funny as well. Yes. Yeah, the, the last thing that I'll point out that I thought was really well done, I thought the score for this movie, uh, like the score for Hereditary, was just really <sighs> impressive. Haunting. So good. Just like the the loud strings, it just really overwhelms you with this sense of dread and foreboding. Just I've actually been listening to it on Spotify all day. It's just really, really well done. Yeah. Yep. And the, vi- the visuals were great. I thought there were a couple really awesome shots, especially from above. Like all the dining shots, I thought were great. And the color scheme that they used, and how everybody in the in that community is in white. Visitors are all in dark colors, so they really stick out. And then as they get more acclimated and brought into the group they they start getting into more white clothing so little color theory oh yeah that's a good good catch yeah i mean i i think it's very clear you know regardless of whether you like this movie or liked hereditary that ari aster is just an extremely talented filmmaker and it's only a matter of time before he makes something that is just a complete masterpiece that everybody's gonna love yeah he keeps getting close how old is he will is he like your age 31 Oh, okay. he's not that much his, of a baby. For, for some reason, his Wikipedia bio says that he was born in 1987 slash 1988. That's like the start of, of one of his movies, I feel like. <laughs> <laughs> yes. 
for sure. Yeah, guys, this was really great. And anyone out there who is into weird movies, we definitely recommend it. All right. Yeah, thank Thanks, you. guys. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.